Welcome, welcome. This is the New Mexico in Focus podcast for January 10th, 2020. I'm Kevin McDonald, executive producer for the show. Happy New Year to one and all. Happy New Decade to one and all. We thank you for tuning in to this week's show with a lot of great stuff in it. First off, we've got an interview for our monthly environmental series, Our Land. The correspondent, Laura Pasca, she sits down with John Fleck. He's co-authored a new book called Science Be Damned, How Ignoring Inconvenient Science Drained the Colorado River. So John talks a lot about how, from the very beginning, really, of plans for the Colorado River, that there was not going to be enough water to go around, and how we've managed that up to now, and what we need to be thinking about to manage that down the road. So for those of you interested in water planning, as we all should be, really important interview for all of us for sure also we've got two uh, reporters journalists in um, from the santa fe new mexican we've got jen's gold and we've also got dan mckay of the albuquerque journal both have done reporting recently on the permian basin oil boom and how that is doing great things for the state coffers but also coming with a lot of challenges not to mention infrastructure but jobs roads schools housing all of it having a hard time keeping pace so we talked to them a little bit about their reporting what else they've learned and how that all may play into the upcoming legislative session as well speaking of the legislative session the line this week has a really great conversation about budget plans which have started to come forth and of course it's a short session a 30-day session so it's supposed to focus primarily on that budget the governor issued her budget this week as well as lfc issued their budget suggestion as well line panelists will break that down for you we've got a great group of line panelists i should mention as well we've got former new mexico state senator eric griego as well as former state senator diane snyder also line regular laura sanchez rebay and we've got ed perea so a good table to talk about all these things they will also talk about some big news in the u.s senate race to replace tom udall probably the biggest headline grabber was the news that KRQE weatherman Mark Ronchetti was quitting his job there at the TV station to run for the Republican nomination for the U.S. Senate race. That surprised a lot of folks, I think. So they break down the race with these new additions. That was just one of a couple this week. So you'll want to listen to what they have to say about that. Also, 2020 starting off on an an all-too-familiar note in some of our cities and biggest cities in the state, Santa Fe and Albuquerque, primarily crime we're talking about. We've already had a homicide and a gun shootout in Santa Fe in the state's capital. And so we just really want to talk about how we're going to get our hands on this in the coming year and really try to move the needle on lowering the crime rate in our state. So a really great show in ta- on tap for you this week. Also should mention that Gene Grant is uh, under the weather this week, as I know a lot of people are. He's fighting off the same bug a lot of folks are fighting off. But senior producer Matt Grubbs fills in uh, in his stead this week. So that's why you'll hear a different voice from what you may be used to. But we hope he'll be back up and kicking next week. Gene Grant, that is. Also, let us know what you think about any of the topics in this show. You can reach out to us on email, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, any of those places, YouTube even. Love to hear from you. Right now, we'll send you off to the show. Hope you enjoy. Funding for New Mexico in Focus provided by the McCune Charitable Foundation and the Nieper Natural History Programming Fund for KNME-TV. And viewers like you. This week on New Mexico in Focus, an R-Land interview on how decades of ignoring science has drained the Colorado River. We overestimated the available supply, and so we came to expect more water than the river could provide. And the Permian Basin is driving the state's economy, what it means at the capital and in the oil patch. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm Matt Grubbs, a senior producer here. Gene Grant is, like much of the rest of the state, fighting off a cold this week. He'll be back. The race to replace retiring U.S. Senator Tom Udall has been a bit of a yawner until now. Two new Republican candidates have announced a run, including TV weatherman Mark Ronchetti. The line has a campaign forecast. The new year arrived with a literal bang as several high-profile shootings portend a grim year for crime, Where are local leaders in solving the problem, and how are we going to know if it's getting better? 
We start with a look ahead to the legislative session, which is less than two weeks away. The governor and a key legislative panel announced their proposed budgets this week. Here's the line. A wash in oil money lawmakers take to the Capitol on January 21st for this year's legislative session. Both the governor and the Legislative Finance Committee released budget proposals this week. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham has proposed better than an 8% increase with added spending on schools, more money for roads and infrastructure, especially in southeast New Mexico, pay raises, a one-time infusion of money into a trust fund for early childhood education, and money to fill in the gaps for students to make tuition at state colleges and universities free. Lawmakers sit at about 6.5% for their increase, with differences in funding for a new early childhood education department and in money for that public higher education tuition. Let's introduce our panelists before we get going here on the line. All of them have signed up to research this week's topics and offer their informed opinions. First, we welcome line regular and attorney Laura Sanchez-Rive. Laura, nice to have you with us. Happy birthday to you Thank as you. well. Appreciate that. Oh. 29. Yeah, right. And, and holding. Exciting. Yes. And holding, yes. <laughs> Diane Snyder, a former state senator, thanks to have us have, have you back. It's great to have you have you here. Our frequent guest, Ed Perea, is here as well. He is a lawyer and a public safety expert. Ed, good to see you. Good to be here. And former state senator Eric Griego. Eric, welcome back. Nice to see you. Let's Happy start birthday. with you. Absolutely. Happy New Year to everyone. Um, lawmakers are going to spend a, a month dissecting this budget. We're going to do it in about 10 minutes. Um, <laughs> so they'll have uh, some pointers to take, um, particularly the difference, Eric, in um, funding the early childhood education department. There's a big chunk there, about $50 million. What do you see in that difference? Well, you know, I think the creation of an early childhood department was a huge, huge accomplishment. I think a lot of folks get credit for working hard on that. And um, but if you're going to create a new sort of infrastructure, you got to fund it, right? And that means um, taking all these disparate pieces that used to be in, in various departments and trying to do it in a consolidated way, as many states have done, um, is a, a huge step forward for 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 young children in New Mexico. Um, unfortunately, and I agree with James Jimenez uh, at New Mexico Voices, who said, Lena, look, we, we've done all this work. We've been talking about this. We have the money now. Um, we need to fund this department. And um, not just the, and, and, and by the way, this isn't just funding a bureaucracy and a bunch of state employees. This is funding programs and funding the whole spectrum of early childhood, which you know starts before birth, but really at least at birth, zero to five. Um, which has been grossly underfunded, and it still is. There have been some big increases. One of the other things in this budget that the governor is proposing um, is a number of increases which are very positive into, in terms of eligibility for child care assistance, uh, some more money for various programs, all good stuff. And then there's this $320 million um, early childhood trust fund. Again, positive on its face. It seems like a lot of money, but essentially it's, it's, it's money that's going to be kept in reserve and then we'll be drawing down a significant but not nearly uh, adequate amount of funding for early childhood, you know, 20 to $30 million a year. Um, and it sounds good on paper. My, my only concern is that um, um, we're, we're funding early childhood probably best case scenario two-thirds of what it should be at in terms of the 120,000 kids zero to five. So what we ought to be talking about is diversifying state revenues in a way that doesn't rely on oil and gas, not just for all of state government, but specifically for things like investments in early childhood. So if we, I hope that in this session, in addition to talking about this very important budget issue, that they'll talk about how do we really replace those oil and gas revenues with uh, reforming our personal income tax system, reforming our corporate tax system, uh, eliminating you know deductions for things like capital gains. So that way we are not relying on this this boom and bust cycle or and and having to create special funds so that we can save the money. The last thing I'll say is I think it was the governor. Um, this is a big increase, but I want to remind people that we had a flat budget for many many years and we haven't invested in things like early childhood and K twelve and so on. So this is a big sounds like a big increase, but it's really making up for lost time and and then. The governor also put is proposing putting 25% into into reserves, which is a huge amount of money to say we're going to make sure we can cover any uh, unforeseen circumstances. So it's a good budget. I'm a little disappointed in where the early childhood money is going, um, and I think her budget is much better than the, the legislative council council uh, legislative finance council's budget, the legislative budget. Sure, sure. Um, Laura, I want to pick up with you on this. Do you think that um, what Eric was talking about that the the early childhood trust fund takes the place of any proposed constitutional amendment for land grant permanent fund or anything like that for early childhood education? Well, I don't know that it, it takes, I, mean, I think it's a, it's a win for 
um, those that have advocated for the trust fund for a long time. Sure. Um, I think that it's important to create a different space than what the permanent fund has done. Um, and I think everybody, the, what I find really interesting is that LFC, their proposal actually increases the amount over what the governor proposed. So the governor proposed 320 million, um, LFC's proposing uh, 325 million for that, mm -hmm. which I think is a huge, for anybody who's been around the legislature and has been part of this discussion, um, that's huge to have the legislators like um, uh, John Arthur Smith, Senator Smith from Deming, to then, you know, to bless this idea of putting more money into that, that fund. I think it's important to, to recognize that. I think that's a big, a, a good move forward. But back to what Eric was saying, 20, 21, I think it's 21.7% less funding for that uh, department, department right. over what the governor's proposing. That's pretty big. Sure. I think so, so big picture, if you take a step back, um, it's interesting to me to see how close they are in the big numbers um, to each other. The governor's proposal is like seven point, I'm sorry, uh, 7.68 maybe, um, something like oh, that. Oh, billion, right. Or billion, yeah. I'm sorry, 7.68 billion. And then the um, legislature, 7.54 billion. So they're not really that far apart, but there's big differences in the, in the details. And I think that's what's really interesting. What I found important too is that um, both of them talk about infrastructure, and the governor's proposal was another 200 million for infrastructure. Um, they put 425 million, I think, last year on infrastructure. We're talking about roads, highways. That's also a job creator, which is important for New Mexico to make sure we have people that are, you know, taking those jobs in construction. We're able to get people to work um, to do that, and so that I found really important. And there might be kind of a spinoff from that, real quickly. And Diane, I'll come to you next. But um, you hear in the construction industry, they're having such a difficult time finding people. So if you create these jobs, or there's a state maybe one or two year window for some of these projects, then you have those people here. It's easier for people in Albuquerque, the southeastern part of the state, to sort of entice them. Diane, um, fiscal conservatives, um, I think they bristle when you create a new State Department because automatically you're having to sort of replicate stuff that was already taking place. If you're, if you're carving up a bunch of departments and putting them into the early childhood education umbrella, um, you're going to have to hire just sort of staff to make that department work. Does that concern you? Uh, to some degree, but one of the things that they did is they took segments from several different departments and put them together. Yes, you had to have a new secretary and leadership. There will be some additional staff, but not like it was something that the services weren't already being done or provided. So in that sense, it's not totally new. I think that fiscal conservatives we tend to like the idea of the trust fund because you're planning ahead for the future. Because no matter, even with the 25% reserve, uh, oil and gas is not going to stay at the, you know, at the top like it is right now. It will eventually bust back down. The boom only lasts so many years. We saw, and, and certainly some of the years that I was in the Senate, we had a huge boom right when I started, and then we had a huge bust in where it was difficult. Our roads suffered, our education suffered, everything. Our courts were really penalized so far as getting funding. So you have to really plan ahead. So I do think the fiscal services would like that. The thing that I think, for me, if I could just veer a little here, sure, of course. is the funding for free education. Um, I'm very worried about that because I see it, it we hear, and all I see is us educating young people. And then they graduate and they will leave New Mexico because they don't have a job here. And I, so I think we need to make sure we're doing some equal uh, economic development aspects to make sure those young people have jobs because What's, you know, and the other piece of that is we know there's a shortage of uh, professional workers in the trades area. Sure. So we, why not, I'd like to see some of that going toward trades uh, tuition in the trade schools like CNM or places. I think that would be a real, that would be to me a balanced approach to overall education of our young people. And Ed, I want to jump in here. We'll steal some time from our next segment. Um, uh, what strikes you about this budget? I, I wanted to ask you about public safety because there are a lot of resource questions, um, right. both for courts. Uh, the governor said she wants to hire more state police officers. What, what do you see in here that makes sense to you or doesn't? Well, what makes the, the greatest sense is education. The focus, it's time has come. We've been talking about our education issues for a long, long time. And we have a number of initiatives. And it, 
undertook in part the lawsuit of Yazi Martinez in order to try to impact and, and force some changes as far as the, the funding is concerned. Because we know at the core when we talk about public safety, you know, we think about crime stats and we think about violent crimes and everything associated with crime and victims, uh, which is so important, but it all starts with education. If we can have a solid educational foundation within this state, it's going to impact everything along the way. So this is really an investment into our criminal justice system. The greater, the stronger, the more efficient our education system is. I, I would expect, and, and I think statistics play out, that even crime will drop. Um, there, there are some, uh, some issues uh, uh, that impact crime when it comes to a soft or a weak educational system. So again, from the public safety standpoint, this priority and this focus on education I think is critical to the future uh, of, our, of our overall criminal justice system because there is a cost associated with that. And I think the governor in this case is investing on the education piece and in the future that will reduce the cost on our criminal justice side because right now the criminal justice system needs an infusion of, of money and uh, revenue in order to deal with our current crime problem. So, sure. so this is a look towards the future. And we hear that time and again, you know, it costs so much more money to deal with this on the back end right. in, in the judicial system than it does in the education That's system. Right. So we're up against the clock, so we'll have to leave it there. We are going to get political in our next segment, talking high profile new entries into the race for the U.S. Senate. The legislators have obviously made a huge effort to not tap more things like the land-grant permanent fund. There's just going to be a lot of debate around this over the next month. Even though there's this huge influx of revenue, there's also a lot of pent-up demand from all the years that were so lean. And also there's, well, I think more of a sense of entitlement. Now everybody wants them. We're in studio for this month's installment of Our Land. Environmental correspondent Laura Paskus is focusing on water with John Fleck, director of the University of New Mexico Water Resources Program. He's the co-author of a new book with Colorado's Eric Kuhn. It's called Science Be Damned, How Inconvenient Science Drained the Colorado River. Before John became director of the Water Resources Program at UNM, he was a journalist for about 30 years covering water, science, the national laboratories in New Mexico. Over the past few years, he's turned his attention to the Colorado River. Thanks for joining us today, John. It's so John. great to be here. <laughs> Good. So can we start with an overview of the Colorado River? Where is it? Who uses it? So the Colorado River um, basin starts uh, in the high mountains of the Rocky Mountains in Colorado, a little bit in Wyoming and Utah. Um, begins a snow melt, flows down through the canyon country of Utah, the famous Grand Canyon, and out into the deserts of Arizona and California and Sonora and Baja. Um, it also is the supply of water to places like Albuquerque because throughout the Colorado River Basin, we've built these diversions that take water out of the basin to the places where people live, like Santa Fe and Albuquerque here in New Mexico, Denver in the Front Range in Colorado, uh, Los Angeles and San Diego over on the West Coast. Okay, and who's using the water? Like who, uh, who really relies upon it? So we have something like 40 million people in the United States and Mexico who rely on the water for water supply, for municipal water supplies in places like Albuquerque, which is why I'm so interested in it. Um, we also have large areas of farmland. Um, this time of year in the winter, the lettuce you eat is probably being grown with Colorado River water down in Yuma and Imperial and um, Arizona and California deserts. Um, large agricultural areas, so perhaps 80% of the river's water goes to agriculture. A lot of that goes to alfalfa to feed to cows and dairies for your pizza cheese and your hamburgers. A lot of that goes to the winter vegetables that we have become so accustomed to getting in the supermarket year round. Mm -hmm. So in the book that you just co-authored with Eric Kuhn, you go through a number of um, really interesting pieces of history and science and kind of explore the Colorado River Compact. But I feel like there's one main point that you really drive home in this book. Can you talk about that with our viewers? The problem. The problem is that from the beginning, as we were developing the Colorado River, deciding how much water to allocate to each of the seven states in the United States and two in Mexico, how big dams to build, what kind of canals to build, we overestimated the available supply. And so we came to expect more water than the river could 
provide. And the conventional story is, well, it was a really wet period when they allocated the water, and that's the story I believed for a long time. But what Eric and I did going back into the old hydrologic records and the old early research of the US Geological Survey and others is found that in fact, there were scientists at the time who were warning that we were over allocating the river, that it couldn't provide the amount of water that they were planning on developing, and that over time we would run out of those available supplies if we overallocated it the way we did. And so it's a question of ignoring inconvenient science. And we saw this happen in the teens and the 20s when the first water allocation rules were developed. And then Eric and I documented happening over and over again through the history of the Colorado River's development. We kept promising more water than the river could provide and sort of pushing off the problems onto future generations. The future has now arrived. The reservoirs are draining because we're trying to continue to use more water than the river can provide. And so we're at the moment of reckoning right now. So you mentioned your co-author. I'm sorry he's not here with us today. Can you tell us a little bit about Eric Kuhn? So Eric Kuhn, who's actually a graduate of the University of New Mexico, <laughs> Um, was for um, three decades, worked for the Colorado River Water Conservation District, ultimately was its general manager. Um, and Eric and I hooked up now four years ago to start working on this book. Um, Eric brought to the project these brilliant insights about the relationship between the hydrology and the water allocation rules and management because he was working in the system um, throughout the last three decades as we were coming to this reckoning. Um, and Eric is the one, I think, more than anybody else in the basin, who really realized early on um, the scientific mistakes, the mistakes in ignoring inconvenient science that are at the heart of the basin's problems today. So how does that play out today? We have, um, we have lots of users, cities, states, uh, farmers. We have a warming climate. We have demands for water. How are those decisions that were made back in the early 20th century really playing out today and affecting what we can and can't do today? So we're in a period of transition in Colorado River Basin governance from a, a time of plenty when we had full reservoirs to figuring out how to use less water. And we have this sort of fundamental problem where you have a lot of people who have these expectations based on the old water allocation formulas worked out a century ago that, well, we're entitled to X amount of water where X is a really big number and the river can't provide that. So you have a lot of water users thinking, yeah, but it says in the Colorado River Compact, we're supposed to get this much water. Why can't we? And coming to terms with that reality, sort of recognizing the modern science. Um, and this is the case even before we start to deal with the, the effects of climate change. And then climate change makes it that much harder. So the reality is coming to terms with and getting people at the local level in places like Santa Fe and Albuquerque and Los Angeles and San Diego and the Imperial Valley to realize there ain't that much water in the river. We're not gonna get what the paper allocations of the Colorado River Compact told us we should expect. And one of the things that's happening, and this is something that Eric and I talk about in the book, is in fact, we're doing a pretty good job of using less water. California's take on the Colorado River uh, in 2019 was the lowest it's ever been. California is using less water. Um, Arizona's cutting back. Albuquerque's phenomenally successful. So. Part of what's going on is that people, in fact, when they have less water, are being successful in using less water. The challenge is to sort of recognize that, to not feel like, well, as our population grows, we're just gonna have to get more water. The water isn't there, and so coming to terms with that and figuring out how to r reckon with that reality that there's less water. And, and I mean, I'm confident we can do that, but there are a lot of challenges to doing that. Right. So, and looking back, I think it's it's so interesting. I really, I loved this book and I loved you, you and Eric really turned that narrative on its head. I think for many of us who've been um, paying attention to water issues, there has been this whole idea of, um, it was a wet period when they were divvying up the Colorado River's waters and we kind of have this idea looking back that, oh, well, they just didn't know any better. Um, but what you found is that they did know better. Yeah. <laughs> Can you talk about um, the surprise of that, perhaps? Well, so there's this wonderful character named um, Eugene Clyde LaRue <laughs> that we talk about a lot in the book. He, he's an amazing guy. He was an early hydrologist. And, and 
LaRue was the US Geological Survey scientist who the nation turned to to pull together the big reports that said how much water there is. And LaRue was very clever about looking into old climate records and, and realizing that there had been significant droughts before this wet period um, and tried to warn people of that. And the moment for me in writing the book, as much as any, was, was reading old congressional hearing um, transcripts. Because we were trying to figure out, well, what were people thinking as they were making those decisions? We went back to the hearings before Congress, and there's a hearing in 1925 where LaRue sits before a bunch of senators, and he says, there's not enough water for you to do what you're planning to do. And I can still remember the day I was sitting there first reading that transcript, and I kept reading and reading and reading, waiting for someone to ask him about that. Mm -hmm. um, and they never did. You know, LaRue is sitting down before a committee of the United States Senate saying, there's not enough water for the projects you're about to build, and nobody even asked him about it. They were, the, the, will, the ignorance was sort of willful. Right, so what, what stories do we tell ourselves today um, maybe that aren't quite accurate? Or what do we need to be questioning today so that we don't doom the, the Colorado River of the future? So one of the most important ones is the common belief, and this is common not only on the part of the general public, but under, on the part of a lot of water managers. Um, Eric and I get a lot of pushback from water managers about this idea that, um, well, if we're gonna have growing population, we need a bigger water supply. That's just not the case. There's this phenomenon the economists call decoupling going on, where water use is going down even as population rises. And this provides the space for success to happen, but it's not gonna happen if we don't recognize this reality. This has sort of become, for Eric and I, the sort of new inconvenient science that people just don't wanna to listen to. And it's amazing to me the kind of pushback we get when we try to make this argument. People say, no, but, Demand's gonna go up. It's not going up, and we're seeing this everywhere. We don't know how much farther down it can go. I mean, I think that's a really important issue. That's a really an active area of research, you know, the, the kind of stuff I work on now at the University of New Mexico in my sort of new academic career, the University of New Mexico Water Resources Program, really looking at these questions of what using less water really looks like for these communities. But acknowledging that we can use less water creates the space for collaborative solutions because we have some additional water needs that I think are gonna be really important that we have to figure out how to meet. Um, one is the, the nation's obligations to Native American communities, which have been left out of this great water allocation scheme that we've been developing over the last century, century. And there's some sort of legal, but also ethical issues about our responsibility to those communities that have been left behind in the, all this water development. And then we're really starting to get the hang of returning water to the environment. How do we do that? That's a really hard problem, especially as climate change reduces flows. But if we recognize that we can use less water on our far farms and in our cities, that creates the space if we can figure out how to properly exploit it to provide water to these kind of left out parts of the system with the environment and native communities. We can't talk about water and rivers um, in the Southwest without at least mentioning snowpack. We had a good snowpack and runoff last year. Uh, We'll see what happens this year, but do we need more than one or two good years? Yeah, so I mean, one of the real challenges, so, so one of the roles I play as a kind of public figure in this whole world now is people invite me to speak at conferences and I'm the optimist, like you heard me just make the optimistic pitch. And then the climate change scientists, people like Jonathan Overbeck or Brad Udall will stand up and they'll give these really gloomy negative things. And I just like, you know, there are some really dire climate change scenarios that I don't, feel comfortable thinking we have a way out of. But um, so, so climate change is an enormous problem. It's reducing the amount of runoff we get for a given amount of rain and snow that falls in the mountains. Um, and so one big year doesn't do it. Even a series of big years doesn't do it. It buys us more time to be more flexible in, in these solutions, but we also, need to remember that we, we can't take our foot off the gas if we have a wet year. We, we, we need to be working really aggressively with our water conservation efforts and with our collaborative water sharing arrangements, even when the reservoirs tick up a little bit as, as they have 
um, in recent years. Right. Well, thank you for continuing to write about water and keep us all updated on what's happening. And thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. This is fun. <laughs> thanks, John. We are back with the line now since the exit from the U.S. Senate race of Democratic primary challenger Maggie Toulouse-Oliver. The campaign has been a bit of a snoozer. Republicans had three candidates running, two of whom had lost prominent races last election cycle, and one is a relative unknown. But on Monday, businessman Luis Sanchez announced his entry into the race with a slick campaign video. And the next morning, KRQE meteorologist Mark Runcetti quit his job to run. So, Laura, in a past life, you led the state Democratic Party. Um, what's it like at this stage of the game with a uh, little less than six months until the primary and you have um, five candidates and you have sort of a big name like uh, like a Mark Ronchetti get in? So just a quick correction. I, I didn't. I'm not going to take credit for leading. For leading. OK. <laughs> I was executive director, okay. uh, not chair. Okay. <laughs> Very different. Uh, but in any event, yes, I've, I'm intimately familiar with the, the party politics on the Democratic side. But the process is similar on the Republican side as well. And so we now have five people in the on the Republican side. It really comes down to the basics. So they they're entering very late, in my opinion. I mean, this is a really, really short period of time that they have now about really about a month, a little over a month um, to collect all the signatures that they, that they need to even get on the ballot. So that's step one. Um, <coughs> in addition to that, they also have to get their ground game ready for the delegate selection um, going into the pre-primary convention, which are held typically in March. And this is all by state statute, so both sides has to have to do this. Um, so with five people vying for this, you're talking about basically doing what they can to identify their delegates. What's interesting is that some of these folks have run for office before, so they probably have some connections to the party. They probably have been to some of these meetings. They know a lot of the, the just the regulars at the party. Um, a name like Mark Ronchetti will help him in the actual uh, primary in June, but I don't think it necessarily helps him um, at the party level unless he's been active. So he's got the name, but I think he's also going to be seen by some of the party regulars with some suspicion because he's sort of just jumping in so late and expecting that the name's going to carry the day. When these are regulars, these are party faithful. They go to all the meetings. They have very strong um, commitments to the party structure. And so I think that a lot of folks see that with a little bit of suspicion when some big name jumps in and expects it's going to be a cakewalk for them. That being said, um, he could potentially also garner a lot of um, attention and, and try to get a, a, you know, a good ground game going. But it's going to be difficult, I think, for him. It's not going to be as easy to navigate those waters as, as maybe it would be with name ID in the primary. Sure, sure. Diane, um, do party faithful tend to sort of follow the money in this situation? Um, yeah, maybe he doesn't have uh, the kind of infrastructure that Laura was talking about in terms of, of, of delegates. Um, but do people get a sense of where the money's going in a race like this? I don't think right at this moment that money is even an issue, except can he raise money? Okay. Um, and the thing that uh, Laura didn't mention, which is pretty well known behind the scenes, is that Mark is going to have access to all the Susana Martinez monies, fundraising monies, that uh, uh, Jay McCluskey okay. is doing some of the uh, staff work for Mark. And so that's a heavy duty asset right there, just to have a, 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 a being able to call on that fundraising group. Those experienced names. Those experienced okay. people and the money sources. The uh, other thing is, is uh, the only thing I disagree a little bit is, yes, we did have two who have run for office before, but the other two never have, and they don't, I don't know, I'm not real familiar with them. I know they've been, uh, that Elisa Martinez has been active in the uh, Right to Life organization, and then the uh, NRA and everything that. Oh, Luis Sanchez. Luis yeah, Sanchez right. would have that connection through Cabela's. So they have those, but and the other two have served some and been out there. So it may end up, it, it, starting this late, it may be a little difficult to get the percentage that Mark needs at the uh, convention. But there is the caveat that if you go out and get the additional signatures, you're still on the ballot, primary right. ballot. And then you can and I think, work. And then I think it's a, I don't think it's a cakewalk for him, but his name ID, and uh, there, there's a lot of things you have to, you look at to, uh, for a candidate. Do they have experience? Uh, what are they like? Or is their family, are they pictured right? And that kind of thing. But the thing you can't teach anybody, are they right on the issues? But you can't teach somebody electability. And Mark has electability. 
The others are nice people, they, but they don't have that electability, and Mark has it. So that's going to stand him in good stead, I believe. Okay. There's, there's, and we do want to point real quickly, it's, uh, it's calibers, not not. Calibers. I'm sorry. That's yeah. not a problem. So uh, I have a different take. I, you know, okay. having run a Democratic primary and had to raise lots of money, I think the money is really crucial. And um, some of the pre-primary stuff, you know, I decisively won the pre-primary convention. <laughs> and, you know, the governor who I ran against, you know, she came in third. And so... Um, uh, so first of all, you have to be electable, obviously. Um, but, and I think, I think the strategy is you have sort of a pro-life candidate who really is going to try to lock up that. You know, you've, now you've got a pro-gun candidate, um, and then you've got this outsider. I think Ron Keddie's going to run as the sort of Trump outsider. Like I don't know anything about politics, therefore elect me, right? Um, which I think is a little bit absurd, but um, but it seems to be in this 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 political environment that we're, that we're in, there's a whole bunch of people who are going to like that. Now, they may not, they're not going to be the party insiders, right? They're going to be they're going to be maybe people who will be drawn in through the Trump uh, uh, sort of efforts. Um, I do think that um, whoever raises the most money in a crowded Republican primary, just like any primary, is likely to come out of it. So if, if Diane is right that Ron Ketty's got the inside track, you know, aligning himself with the McCluskey-Martinez folks and some of that big money, and they see he's the best horse, because none of these other, ca other candidates are really that compelling, although they're all, there is only one woman sort of really strongly pro-life, pro is my understanding, in that primary. There's, there's rumors that another may get in. So I think he's in good stead to sort of maybe, if he can raise the money to come out of the primary strong. But I just have to say, let's be realistic. These guys haven't even raised a 20% of what Ben Ray Lujan has raised. Right. He's, he's almost, rolling at, he's almost at $3 million. Sure. He's going to run circles out of any of these guys who come out of the primary in terms of policy and experience. I don't agree with him on everything, but I'm just saying the guy is a battle-tested. And the last thing I'll say, this is the United States Senate. These are 100 supposedly of the best and the brightest in politics in the country. It's, it's one step from being president. So to say, like... You may be the only one who thinks that. That's well, right. I, I, I got uh, to pivot to Ed here. Not based on what we see today. And, um, <laughs> how does this feel? Does Ben Ray Lujan, does he have something to be worried about now that there are not just a big name like Ron Ketty, um, but, but four other people in there, and there seems to be some energy now in the Republican primary? That's right. We never underestimate the competition. I don't know. I don't care who you are, how far you are, you are ahead in the polls, what the polls show. You have to take the competition seriously. With regard to the Republican Party, um, in this state here, they're lagging a little behind. They've been losing you know, a lot of races. They just don't have that the strength of that party here in New Mexico. And it's going to take a lot of money. It's going to it comes down to money, money, money. Name recognition is important, but that's what you're going to use the resource of the money to do is to get your name out there. Now with with Ron Ketty. He was a, a TV meteorologist. He probably sort of has limited exposure to the TV station that he worked for. You know, there's Mick Rich out there who had spent a lot of money during his last campaign. Sure. So he has a little name recognition going on as well. So uh, there may be a little bit of a race on the Republican side. I, I don't think that's, uh, uh, that's over yet, but I think it's, as the others have said, who can raise the most money? Who has access to that in order to get the name out there to you know, all portions of the state? Okay. Just one quick thing that I think will make a difference is I have a lot of younger friends, 45 and younger, and they have been overwhelmingly excited about Ron Ketty getting in the race. If they can motivate their crowd and get those young people out to vote, that will make a difference in both the primary and the general election. Okay. Okay. One thing we don't know about Ron Ketty is where he stands on many of these issues. And we'll right. find that out um, soon. Also, by way of disclosure, I have worked with Mark Ron Ketty in the past at a couple of different stations. We will see how this shakes out. Pre-primary conventions are not too far away, as we mentioned. We'll see early preferences established, as Laura said, in March. After the break, we have a couple of journalists talking about the energy boom. The solution to reducing crime is a community culture, and that's engaging and involving all stakeholders at every level, from the government level to the private sector to the community level. We can reduce crime. New Mexico's oil boom in the Permian Basin is altering life for many in the southeast corner of the state, with people flocking to the area for jobs. Infrastructure, like roads, as well as schools and housing, are struggling to keep pace. The boom is also filling state government coffers as we head into the legislative session later this month. Correspondent Megan Kamrick talks with journalist Jen Schooled of the Santa Fe New Mexican and Dan McKay of the Albuquerque Journal about what this means for the state's future. Dan, I wanted to ask you, what are some of the most significant ways this boom is reshaping life for those in and around the Permian Basin? 
Well, um, it is. Uh, it brought an influx of people from all over the world. From uh, you've got teachers from the Philippines. You've got um, uh, immigrants working in the oil fields. Uh, people from Texas. People from all over have. Um, moved to southeast New Mexico, and they're working in the oil fields. And what does that mean in terms of traffic and housing? And clearly they need, the schools are bursting and they didn't get it, they had to get teachers from overseas to come in and take care of that. Yeah, they're, they're, you can measure the, the traffic backups in miles. Um, wow. the, the roads are just completely overwhelmed in, in many cases with trucks and school buses and, um, uh, you know, there's just a tremendous amount of activity, and it really is something to see. And it's it's hard, I think, for uh, a lot of us who spend a lot of time in Albuquerque and Santa Fe, it's hard for us to wrap our head around how much is happening in mm -hmm. Carlsbad and Hobbs and, and these smaller towns in southeast New Mexico. Jen's Gould, I mean, one thing it's doing is like salaries are way up, even for people working in Walmart and fast food. And yeah, a lot of the fast food restaurants as you're driving uh, through Artesia and down into Carlsbad have on their marquee signs uh, now hiring, uh, hiring on the spot, one of them even said. Uh, some of them said they were hiring at $14 an hour, even 18 The reason is the oil fields are paying so much and a lot of the locals are working in the oil fields that that makes it very difficult for local businesses to, I mean, it's, it's, it's two-pronged, right? On the, on the one hand, it's a very good, there's a huge upside for locals who now have more purchasing power, they have more opportunities. But on the other hand, small businesses are having a lot of trouble hiring. Um, and, I, and I agree with Dan, I mean, it's really something you have to see. You, have to, you spend one day there and you just see the massive mm. um, amount of activity. It's just, it's buzzing. There's a serious crunch on housing. Also crunch on housing, and that's why you see this proliferation of RV parks and, and man camps. Um, man camps. Man right. camps, yes. They don't mean? like that term, though. Oh, okay. They don't like but it. what is it? Temporary lodging facilities, I think they prefer. Okay. But a man camp is basically a large plot of land where there are these um, um, tracked uh, mobile housing units, and uh, it's for temporary workers, mostly in the oil fields, to, to stay because they don't come with their families by and large, they tend to be there for several months at a time and then move on to mm. another place. Part of that is because of how the industry works, but part of it is because there just isn't enough housing for them in the area. And a lot of these RV parks too, they'll just sprout up unlicensed, unpermitted all over the area. And do you have a sense, Dan, when you're there, like all this, this must be all this new revenue flowing in mm -hmm. as well for, uh, hopefully for, to build more roads? to build more housing, um, more police? Yes, certainly the, the oil boom um, is transforming New Mexico in general because it's providing so much, so much revenue for state government. Um, you know, it's allowing for increased teacher salaries, increased investments in education. Um, uh, the state is using cash to pay for capital projects without even having to borrow in some cases. Um, and then for the local governments, um, you know, in Hobbs, they built this really uh, nice recreational facility with this 40-foot water slide in the middle of it. And it's, it's not like anything else you can find in New Mexico, but it is thanks partly to all this revenue. Um, but again, the, the people are coming in so fast that there is a strain on services. You know, it, it takes some time to build, um, uh, to improve the roads and build housing and all this stuff. So it's... Um, it really is a fascinating, a fascinating area, and then obviously both the state and the local governments are also struggling with, you know, well, how much of this revenue can we count on to sustain over time, and mm -hmm. how much of it is just a big infusion now that we need to spend only on one-time projects. Um, uh, it, it really is uh, an important story in New Mexico right now. And Jen, some of the governments and lookout—they're a little resentful that more of this revenue isn't staying. There's a tension, and I think yeah. it's a long-standing long tension that mm -hmm. in the southeast part of the state, they've felt that way for a long time, that look, we generate all this oil and gas revenue, you up there in Santa Fe and Albuquerque don't. Um, but you're spending you know, it. <laughs> you're spending it, but, you, yeah, you, but you're not giving enough back. Right? What do they want back? Well, they do get back their percentage of, 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 of GRT, for example. But the gross receipts tax. Mm -hmm. Right, but they want more. They, they say, you know, we should get more of the severance taxes from, from, from oil production, for example. Um, they want their roads to be fixed faster and to... Yeah, because the roads are 
getting a lot of traffic. Roads are out of shape. Know? I mean, the county roads are really chewed up because they're basically ranch roads. But then even the state roads like 285, when they're these little two-lane highways with these massive trucks whizzing by, <clears throat> and those roads just weren't built for that. So they feel like they're not getting help from the state fast enough. On the state side, they say, well, we just approved way more spending for that area of the state than ever before, which is, which is true. I think it's around 200 million over a two year period for roads in just that corner of the state. So um, that is being allocated, but it's taking time. So, so that, for example, the 285 upgrade project hasn't started yet. Um, so it, it's, yeah. it's a slow process. And Dan, um, one of the stories that you did focused on Northwest New Mexico, which was interesting that you know this energy boom has not a universally Mm -hmm. uh, benefited everyone. Northwest New Mexico is struggling. Why? Yeah, so, um, you know, New Mexico is a very energy dependent state, and um, the picture in Northwest New Mexico is much different from Southeast New Mexico. Um, you know, Even the, though it's got big gas fields. Right, so Farmington and um, uh, the Four Corners area is much more reliant on natural gas, and um, natural gas prices are really low. Um, they, natural gas is also produced by the oil boom in the in the southeast part of the state, so the market there, there's more supply. Um, and meanwhile, the state uh, is trying to move towards renewable energy sources uh, like wind and solar in a lot of cases. And um, coal is in decline. Uh, there are m multiple coal plants in the Four Corners areas, and those are, in some cases, they're, they're being shut down uh, or have already stopped commercial production. Uh, so it's, it's a much different picture up there, and um, you know, it's kind of the opposite end of the, the boom and bust cycle, uh, yeah. because they, they have been experiencing the boom, they had experienced a boom at, at, at points. Um, and now they feel like, well, hey, you know, we don't want to be forgotten. We provided a bunch of revenue for the state at one point, and now, you know, we we need help. Did you get a sense, or is there any way of tracking if people are leaving that area and moving down to the Permian Basin? <laughs> um, it's hard to say. They definitely are seeing a population erosion down there uh, or up there, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to the southeast. Um, whether people have moved specifically, I don't know. Um, as Jen's pointed out, a lot of the southeast. Um, Workforce is, is migratory, basically. Mm -hmm. These are oil field workers who, you know, live out of their RV and they move from place to place. Um, you know, it's, it's really difficult to tell someone who's spent their career at a coal plant, um, oh, well, we got plenty of energy work, but now you need to go work in an oil field. I mean, that's, it's kind of a whole different thing. Um, and it's, uh, you know, there's definitely some resentment about, um, you know, the, the human cost of these changes. Are there um, efforts you know, thought in place or coming up to help people you know, to yes. ameliorate some of this impact? Yes, the uh, Energy Transition Act, um, a, a kind of a landmark energy law that was just passed by the legislature, um, uh, does include money for workforce training and uh, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, that that is a possibility. There's also some private in, uh, interests in uh, perhaps retrofitting these some of the coal plants to reduce pollution. Um, so yes, yeah, so mm -hmm. there certainly are some some hopes that um, uh, that things will get back on track up there. Jens, you wrote that uh, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham has made a point of saying she wants to work with industry. At the same time, as Dan said, we have these there are major environmental impacts from the oil boom, and she signed the Energy Transition Act to move the state off fossil fuels. So. How is she balancing these goals? It's a tight line to walk. Uh, <laughs> and and um, just as you say, not, not only the ETA, but also the methane regulations, right. uh, which are being worked on right now, I think are something that um, will have an impact uh, on, on that relationship. Um, but so far, she seems to be walking that line. I mean, she was uh, made some very friendly comments towards the industry at a conference uh, a couple months back um, that environmentalists thought were you know, way, way, going to way too far. Um, but that the industry liked very much, um, and you know I can I can understand politically why one might want to walk that line. We have unprecedented oil revenue that the state's never seen. You can't come out. I mean, she needs to be friendly right. to the to the to the industry bringing that right. So um, I guess it remains to be seen how that relationship unfolds as her term you know, goes on. Well, she's very ambitious plans in terms of free college tuition, raising 
salaries for state workers and teachers. As Dan just explained, there's booms and busts all the time in this industry. So is it wise to plan for expanding programs if we don't know how long this will be around? Well, they're making a point. So this is going to be the second straight year of, of major increase, a major increase in the, in the budget. Um, the governor's asking for more than 8% increase in, in the budget, um, and that'll be flushed out in the session that's about to start. Uh, they've made it a point of saying we want to target 25% reserves. Mm -hmm. They're saying, you know, if there were a downturn in the economy or in oil prices, that would allow us to be okay for two years, you know, putting that, that amount aside. Um, the legislators have obviously made a huge effort to not tap more things like the land grant permanent fund. There's going to be a lot of debate around this over the next month. Even though there's this huge influx of revenue, there's also a lot of pent-up demand from all the years that were so lean. And also there's, well, I think more of a sense of entitlement. Now everybody wants some. So that's going to have to be hammered out now in the, in the next month. Which is coming up in the budget session. Dan, as we wrap up, we talk incessantly, as you know, about the need to diversify New Mexico's economy. Will this financial windfall from oil and gas help those efforts or delay them? Well, um, it, you know, I, I don't think that's clear at this point. It certainly is almost a unique opportunity to, ha to, to make an investment that helps change the trajectory of the state. Um, the, uh, this revenue growth really is coming from the southeast part of the state rather than sort of a broader economic rebound. Um, but, uh, you know, New Mexico is, uh, is expanding its tax incentives for the film industry. Um, the state is trying to invest in education, both pre-K, K through 12, and higher education. Um, and, and of course, you know, an educated workforce is kind of a backbone of a strong economy. Um, so, so we'll have to see. Mm -hmm. Well, it's obviously something we'll keep watching, especially as the session comes up. Thank you, Jen School, Dan McKay, for coming and talking about your reporting on this. Thanks for having us. New Mexico in Focus is on Twitter and Facebook. Follow us online to get updates on upcoming shows and tell us what you think about the top news stories of the week. Then tune in because we may share your comments on the line. It's a new year with an old problem, crime. Albuquerque and Santa Fe have already notched their first homicides of 2020. Police in the capital city just responded to a shootout where two men were injured. Ed, it's really hard for us to sort of gauge whether it's more or less violent at any particular time because these kind of stories, they get in the news, right? We're interested in them. Um, what's your feeling about where public safety is right now in Albuquerque and the rest of the state? We have a long way to go. I mean, we've seen the, the statistics, the, the statistics paint a picture. Uh, we're, we're on the bottom or the top of the list, depending on how you look at it. When it comes to violent crime, we were number one uh, just, just recently. When it comes to uh, the number of involved police shootings and, and weapons used uh, during the course of these incidences that ultimately end up in uh, police officer having to take use deadly force. I mean, it's very concerning to our community. There are a lot of victims out there, and that should be where the focus is. I mean, our, our concern really has to be to a safer community. Um, st statistically, again, you want to be careful. You know, I, I think it was Mark Twain that said, you know, there are three types of lies, lies, damned lies, and statistics. Sure. But they do tell a story and they do paint a picture. And this is something we really need to get a hold on. Uh, we've been talking about crime for some time, and I know the uh, the local uh, administration here uh, has introduced a number of, of initiatives to, to reduce the crime in our in our city. Um, we really have to have a very comprehensive approach to dealing with, with our crime problem. It's not going to go away, but it also uh, has to do with the community culture as well. I think we need to look at the culture of our community, and I'm not saying that we have a culture of violence, but I'm saying the solution to reducing crime is a community culture, and that's engaging and involving all stakeholders at every level, from the government level to the private sector to the community level, we can reduce crime. I, I ran APD's gang unit uh, in 1996. That was the year that we had the third highest homicide rate. And during that time, we really engaged the community. There were a lot of things that we did that ultimately led to the reduction in the number of homicides in 1996, only to be surpassed in the last, in the last several years. So I have hope that with the right strategies, the right collaboration with all the stakeholders, 
that we can reduce crime. I think uh, there, there's a lot of hope out there, and I'm positive that with some of the things I'm seeing that we could start to see a reduction uh, in crime, but it's something that, that is important to our community that we have to continue to get a hold on. We're, we have a long way to go, let's just put it that way. Laura, when we're in a state that has uh, a lot of issues facing it, um, do you have a sense of how the community might go about galvanizing itself for an attempt um, to solve a problem like violent crime? How do you get all those people to the table? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a tall order, certainly, but um, we have to try. Uh, we've had just some, uh, and it's unbelievable, that two hours into the new year, we had a, you know, a, a fatal a homicide, um, and it unfortunately was very close to where I used to live. It was actually just around the corner, really, um, on the west side, and so, it, it, it's really just disheartening to see that that's happening. I think it's important to get all the right stakeholders in the room, but I think it's also a bigger issue. Um, you know, we have such a such a slow economy here. We don't have a lot of opportunity, and I think we end up. You know, we talked about education earlier um, in a, in the other segment, and I think a lot of it has to do with just our, our cultural problems that we have here. We have we don't have a lot of opportunity. We have a lot of drug issues as well, um, and so I think it's it's a multi-layered approach that we need to take. Um, certainly. You know, having opportunities for mental mental health, behavioral health, um, all of those funding funding sources, I think, are important, and that's something the governor's working on. Um, but I think, as far as addressing what's happening in the city, um, I think we have to take it take a very aggressive approach and get stakeholders in the room to figure out, um, you know, what are the issues facing. And unfortunately, I also think that it's not it's not enough to do it citywide. It really needs to be regionalized because the issues that you have on the west side are very different than what you have you know, in the Heights, very different than what you see in the South Valley. I think it needs to be much more uh, at the local level um, to address some of those issues. Regions of the city as That's opposed right. to regions. Okay, okay. Right. Um, Eric, you, you've dealt with sort of a lot of this multimodal approach to, to solving crime, um, particularly on the kids' side. Um, what do you see that strikes you as a, a way to gauge whether or not we're, we're getting the community involved like we want and whether we're having that success? Well, I just agree that it's such a, a difficult, comp, uh, you know, complex issue. And anybody who thinks they have a, I hate to use gun analogies, but silver bullet, like they're just, it, it, there, there isn't. We've tried so many different things, not just us, other cities and states across the country have tried. I mean, I do think that I'm in the I'm in the camp that says you know that that the the prevention and the investing in the human capital and dealing with mental health and behavioral health and uh, addiction. I, I don't. I know that that's that the culture issue is not what others are talking about. That we have a culture of violence. We have a culture of, of. Uh, I don't. I don't believe that. I think there's. We do have a culture of poverty that's been perpetuated by bad policy. So, things like when when folks fight the minimum wage and folks fight um, access to mental health and so on. I think that they're also to Ed's earlier point. You're basically saying, okay, well, what when people have no alternatives, they become stuck in the cycle of violence and so on. And I and I and I think the research bears that out. This this isn't a sort of a character issue. This is really an opportunity issue. So if you're a fiscal conservative who says, I don't want to invest in homeless programs, I don't want to invest in behavioral health programs, like you're part of the problem. Um, if, if, you, if you're someone who, who, um, who thinks we shouldn't be putting money into after-school programs, you're part of the problem because the alternative is people stuck in a, a perpetual cycle of poverty, disinvestment, and feeling disconnected from their community. So, um, and the last thing I'll say is guns. Uh, you know, it's it's striking that we have a candidate for for the Senate who comes out of like running a gun business because anybody who doesn't think the guns, every single one of these stories involved a gun, most of them, um, whether it's police uh, excessive use of force because they they don't know how armed, who's armed, and they have to react in a certain way. Whether it's um, all the domestic violence we see involving guns, there's legislation now at the state level to once again tighten gun rules but if, if you if you were going to go all in on second amendment issues and not acknowledge that we have not just a, a, a violence problem we have a gun problem in this community which is and in this country right where people are just like yeah we've got all this violence all these people getting shot and don't touch my gun right right i want to get to diane on this we've been reading about the red flag law in in just about the minute that we have left here um given the breadth of the problem um with a law like this um, that is so um, controversial, is that the best solution to you? Or do you think that the governor might have more success in addressing crime through some of these other issues that we're talking about? I think it, through some of these other issues, the public that I've been talking to is very disheartened. There was an overwhelming vote in support for the, uh, to have more healthcare, uh, health, mental health, health facilities. Sure. And suddenly it's become, a, 
an argument about where it's going to be. And we go, okay, why did we vote for all that when we're wasting all of our time trying to get something done? Um, we, we spend too much time with good ideas and we don't deliver anything. And I think people, uh, the crime, we, the statistics, the mayor's office, that blew right. a hole through everybody. Is here we're trusting that this is gonna be the, the information and then we find out a few weeks later that it's not right. And so we're going, well, we're, we've reached the point of who can we trust and who, how can we say, okay, the governor's plan is the best one, the NRA plan's the best one, my plan's the best one. People are now disheartened and discouraged about it. And just one point, and it doesn't matter what the statistics tell us, if people don't feel safe, they don't feel safe. It's a yeah. feeling thing, sure. Yeah. Hey, thanks to you all for digging in this week and agreeing to share your opinions. We're going to get back to our Facebook Live segments next week. Gene, we hope you feel better. We'll be back after the break with a couple of final thoughts. We're glad to be back and hope the new year is treating you well. We have a lot ahead of us in 2020 here at New Mexico in Focus. With the start of the legislature, we'll be partnering with newsrooms across the state to bring you stories and discussions about good government measures in the upcoming session. We're also building out our podcasting library. You can already find an audio version of our show to listen to when you're headed to or from Santa Fe or wherever your travels take you. In addition, we hope to have updates for you on key items and votes throughout the session. The new year also brings some sad farewells for all of us. State Representative Bill Pratt passed away over the holidays. So did longtime Albuquerque City Councilor Ken Sanchez. And we were all surprised by the death of a terrific newsman and human, Rob Dean, former editor of the Santa Fe New Mexican and executive director of Searchlight New Mexico. Our sympathies and our hearts go to their families and all who knew them well. Thanks to you, as always, for joining us and for staying informed and engaged. We'll see you again next week in Focus. Funding for New Mexico in Focus provided by the McCune Charitable Foundation and the Nieper Natural History Programming Fund for KNME-TV and viewers like you.